Okay, well, why don't we pray one more time together. Ask God to bless the preaching of His Word, and we will begin. Pray with me. Father, we come to You, Lord, on the basis of what we sung. Precious Jesus. What He's done for Him. And we have, in our lives, we've proved Him over and over again. His faithfulness to us and Your faithfulness, Father, supremely displayed to us through the offering of Your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we just pray that You would build in us that faith, that we would prove Him over and over, that we would live lives of obedient faith, that we would believe You for big things, and most of all, that we would believe You for Your promises. Give us a mind to understand Your Word today, Lord. And Father, by Your Spirit, may You drive home whatever truth I speak today. Bless Your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We will uh, talk a little bit about uh, the text that we are going to be looking at today and deal a little bit with some controversy surrounding this passage of Scripture um, because there are some textual controversies that happen here in verse 11 that we need to, we need to deal with. Uh, and I'll get to that in a minute uh, and tell you why it's so important for us to, to do that. But let me just begin by saying that what uh, these two verses are helping us to see is how to trust God in the realm of the impossible. You remember last week we looked at what did it mean to trust God in the realm of the unknown. Oftentimes our lives and our walk with the Lord are filled with mystery. We can't look across the the, the span of time. We can't look around the bin. We don't know what's coming around the corner. Much of our lives consist of unknown things. God's secret will is never revealed to us ahead of time. We have to depend on God and we have to trust in His Word and trust in His promises that He will take care of us in the things that we do not know. Well, furthermore, what this tells us now is that we are encouraged to trust God even in the face of things that are impossible. Um, this uh, passage, we're going to touch on Sarah. You know Sarah from Genesis What she's famous for, at least one of the things that Sarah is famous for, is the fact that she laughed at the promise of God. That God had given her a promise so fantastic that she responded in disbelief and actually burst out and laughed uncontrollably. And that is because in her view, the things that God had called her to do were impossible. Now think about it. Our whole life is built upon the impossible. It is not possible brothers and sisters, for you to be brought back to life from a state of spiritual death. Your very salvation is something that was impossible and that became possible because of sovereign grace and the faith that you and I put in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, a question for you is very simple today. What can What can dead people do? Nothing. It is impossible for them to help themselves. See, that is where salvation really begins. That we are impotent, unable, incapable. Uh, the reformers taught the doctrine of total depravity, which meant that 
you know, human beings are sinful in every way uh, that we can think of, their mind, their heart, their will. Every aspect of their humanness in sin- is sinful. But furthermore, what the reformers really meant by total depravity is that man is incapable. This is what separated uh, down the centuries those who fell into a more uh, Pelagian perspective of the will and those who fell more into a reformed or Augustinian perspective of the will. And of course, we believe in what Luther called the bondage of the will, that we are enslaved to our sin and that God has to sovereignly free us. Our whole salvation is built on God doing what is seemingly impossible. I mean, just think of the, think of the friends or think of the family members right now in your life that are not saved, that in your mind you have already concluded it is impossible for that person to become a Christian. And I'd remind you from the words of Genesis, is anything too difficult for God? Don't lose faith in the, the, the God that is able to do the impossible because He can. Furthermore, our lives, our whole sanctification, listen, a whole life lived walking with God by faith, by grace, a whole life of sanctification, a whole life of battling and warring against Our sin, seemingly an impossible task for anybody. By faith, we are able to do the impossible. But we can go on. Impossible things in our marriage. Impossible things in child rearing. Impossible things in ministry. Impossible things in your own personal life, your own personal goals. Provision. Employment. It goes on and on. God puts us in these places where we are totally dependent. Jonathan Edwards, in fact, wrote a sermon entitled God's glo- God Glorified in Man's Dependence. Because that's exactly what God is. He is glorified in our dependence. And so what is Hebrews 11 telling us here? What he's telling us is that we need to increase in our faith. Remember the disciples? They prayed that exact thing. They said in Luke 17 to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. That's what we need today. We need to increase our faith. And so what that tells us is that our faith can either grow or it can decrease. We can either cultivate our faith or we can stunt the growth of our faith. And that's what God calls us to do. To rest in Him in the realm of impossible things. Jesus is the one that said, if you only believed, you can say to this mountain, be removed, and it would be removed. The problem is, as James says, is oftentimes when we ask God something, we ask amiss. We have selfish ambitions. But what Jesus would want to correct in our thinking is our perspective of what are our true and what should our true ambitions be? What should our true goals be in life? They should be totally spiritual. Our goals as Christians should be first and foremost, primarily that which produces spiritual growth in ourselves. Jesus says when you do that, Guess what? Every other temporal need that you may have will simply be added to you. Don't worry about what you will eat, what you will wear, where you will live. Don't worry about any of those things. Concern yourself with the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added unto you. What a glorious promise. What is God saying there? Live recklessly? No, of course not. Be responsible, pay your bills, go to work, earn a living, take care of your family, provide for your home, etc., etc., etc. But don't become a worrywart. 
Don't get so loaded down with anxiety that your eyes are on these temporal things from start to finish. No, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, be so heavenly minded that you're actually looking specifically at the things regarding the kingdom of God, knowing that the God who knows everything, who is able to do anything, is going to take care of you in the process. It's that simple. It really is that simple. But there's some problems, of course. You and I are weak people. You and I, if we're honest with ourselves, we are inadequate people. We fall short. Just on this issue of weakness, uh, this is what Hebrews is really trying to highlight here. It brings in the example of Abraham and Sarah to show us that God did something in the life of two people that had no earthly business whatsoever being qualified or being competent to do what God was calling them to do. See, this is God, again, putting His people in a dependent position. Now, we know that God works despite our flaws. I mean, Sarah is a prime example of that. But let me just, let me just uh, zero in here for a second on Sarah. Because she is mentioned here. It says, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. Now, I want you to really pay attention here. Because I'm going to argue for a different interpretation of the Greek text in that verse. Now, you know that typically I preach the text that you see in your English Bible. Typically, I follow the NASB, it's a really good translation, or the ESV, very, those are very close translations, they're very similar, they're very literal translations, and they do a really good job of translating the Greek text. However, with this verse, there is a textual difficulty that we have to deal with, and I'm going to end up disagreeing with the NASB here a little bit. Um, but I'm not alone, I'm not uh, veering off the path here, Okay. I got John MacArthur's authority on it. (laughs) He does hold the view I'm going to give you. But as I think about Sarah, what you think about is her laughter. But turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 because I just don't want us to throw Sarah under the bus because I'm going to read uh, Genesis chapter 18 and just kind of go over the whole episode of what happened and what Hebrews is referring to. But you remember Sarah that though nothing in Genesis necessarily speaks about her great, uh, uh, her great holiness and her great godliness, we do have commentary uh, from the Apostle Peter. And what is this about? Well, it tells us very uh, plainly that Sarah was, in fact, renowned for her piety, exemplary in her piety in some of the most difficult areas of Christian sanctification, namely, ladies, the area of submission and the area of modesty. Right? I mean, those are tough areas, mainly for women who are seeking to be sanctified and seeking to grow in biblical femininity and womanhood. But notice notice what is said here about Sarah. Beginning in verse 1, because I just thought this is such a glorious text, I want to read it all. But it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe the chaste and their, uh, your chaste and respectful behavior. Talk about being called to something that is impossible, right? Dwelling with an unbeliever in the covenant of marriage who doesn't care, who doesn't respect, who doesn't honor you, who doesn't, who doesn't obey the word of God. Talk about an impossible calling. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are in that right now. 
It says here, your adornment, therefore, must not be merely external, braiding of the hair, wearing of gold jewelry, and putting on of dresses. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, um, I've got gold jewelry on right now. Wait a minute, I braided my hair this morning. Wait a minute, I have a dress on. (laughs) So what gives? So obviously what Peter is talking about here has to do with the vain pursuit of these things. Um, you can you can uh, have two people both wearing dresses, two ladies both wearing dresses. One lady is vain in the process of doing that, and the other one is humble and 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 modest in the process of doing that. So uh, just because you have a dress on doesn't necessarily mean that you are either sinning or being virtuous. It depends on the quality of the person. And look at the quality of the person. Verse 4, But let it be the hidden person of the heart. See, this is the real beauty women should be after. The hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. I had a sister tell me once, um, early on in her Christian walk, she was very loud and boisterous and clamorous, and she found and she read this verse and she says, "I am nothing like that. <laughs> I am a complete opposite of that. I interrupt. I'm loud. I'm boisterous. I'm clamorous." And so, what she ended up doing is she actually ended up adopting a lower tone of voice until she got it, till she was able to talk softer. <laughs> I'm not telling you y'all need to talk softer. But I'm giving you an example of what is precious in God's sight is the complete and total opposite of what the world is telling women to do today. Which is, you know, I am woman, hear me roar. Feminism. Whereas the Bible is saying, no, what God respect, what God regards as precious is a woman who is gentle and quiet in spirit. That is precious in the sight of God. And so, ladies, I tell you, you need to become an exegete and expound this passage of Scripture. But take courage, you are not alone. Look at verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also... It's very basic. You either have regard for the holy women of old or you don't. Period. Case closed. You either aspire to be like the holy women of old or you don't. They hoped in God. They, the, the way they used to adorn themselves. Being submissive to their own husbands. And look at verse 6. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. I remember the first time I encountered a mature, godly woman who called her husband, Sir. I was offended. I was like, walking around calling you sir. But I had no idea of the level of mutual respect and mutual love and mutual honor that existed between that couple that was so far beyond anything where I was in my marriage at the time. And I understood the, 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 the beautiful effect that, that that was actually a term of affectionate endearment. I'm not telling you go around call your husband sir. Just for the record, okay? It's on tape. But if you won't call him sir, what do you call him? Which is to say, how do you talk to him? How do you show honor? How do you show respect? Because it is indicative of the fact that as you respect your husband is a direct reflection of whether or not you respect God. 
That is a principle I can show you over and over in Scripture. The way we treat one another is a barometer of the way that we esteem God. On and on we can go. Suffice it to say, therefore, that Sarah was a beaming example of a person that exalted virtue over fashion, purity over vanity, humility over superficiality, worship over idolatry. And what do you have today? Women walking around with idols in their heart that run so deep. I touch upon this uh, on a college campus all the time. I speak to the women about the idolatry of body lust. No, not men lusting after their bodies, but they lusting after another woman's body to have their figure, to have their look, because they're not satisfied or content with the way that they look, and they will do whatever they have to do. They will take however many laxatives they have to take. They will do whatever they have to become as anemic as they need to become in order to have that girl's body. We have real problems. Now, you men are off the hook today because you're not in the text. (laughs) But I'll turn this right back at the men in here and lay down the conviction of God's Word for all of us. These were weak, frail, flawed people and God desired to use them anyway. What a hope that is for us. That should just fill us with hope God may want to use me? Yes, He may very well want to use you. Um, You never know how God is going to use you. I remember watching a gentleman talk about 9-11 who was a professor at the the university in Egypt uh, known as Al-Azhar. He was a professor of Islamic history and law. And what happened was is that he began to question, deeply question, why is Islam so infatuated with, you know, jihad and violence? And just because he began to question jihad, they immediately concluded he must have converted to Christianity. What's wrong with this guy? They had the secret police in Egypt abduct him at night, rip him from his home. They tortured him and beat him because they were trying to get some sort of confession out of him because he must have converted and there must be a Bible, a study somewhere that you're belonging to or a, a church, an underground church that you're, that you're you know, secretly visiting or something. And he, he tried to confess and he said, no, there's, there's nothing going on. There's nothing there. And they didn't believe him. But alas, what they did is they took him out, dumped him out in an alley after stabbing him, left him for dead. Somebody found him, eventually returned him to his house where his father was waiting with a gun because he had heard that his son had betrayed Islam. So his father chased him out the door, shooting at him. (laughs) This is a true story. I heard it from the man himself. And it was because his sister decided to have pity on him. She gave him enough money to get out of the country and come to America. Do you know what happened? He came to America, I think it was at Yale, where he was pursuing a degree. A young girl invited him to a Bible study. She shared the gospel with him, and the man became a Christian. See, it didn't take a great scholar to reach this man. It took one girl willing to open her mouth, invite a stranger to a Bible study, share the gospel with him in the simplest way she could, and this man became converted. And now he's writing apologetics books exposing the folly of Islam. This is the way that God loves to work. Okay. 
Now, let's deal with a textual issue. Verse 11. You can see here from your text that it says, By faith, Sarah herself received ability to conceive. That's what the NASB says. However, I am tentatively of the position that the person who received, the main verb is received, was not Sarah but Abraham. And that Sarah is what's known as uh, a concessive clause. So in other words, this is the way it probably should read. It should say, by faith, he, that is Abraham, was able to, and then the word here should be procreate, and then here's the concession, even though Sarah being uh, being barren and beyond the proper time of life. Let me stop there for a second. The reason why I say all of that, number one, is, is a couple of things. Number one is because you see the word conceive. That is not a good translation of the Greek phrase. The Greek, fa- the Greek phrase uh, that's being used there is katabelon spermatos. It literally means, folks, setting down seed. And it was a common Hebraic euphemism for the idea of the male act in uh, insemination. In other words, it was it, sp- it spoke of the male act of impregnating his wife. But so so what scholars have the greatest trouble dealing with is that how in the world can that be attributed to Sarah? And so if you look at the textual criticism, which means the manuscripts. There are variants here. There are some manuscripts that don't even include Sarah's name in all of this because of the presence of that language. And so the most responsible textual critics that I could find, men like Bruce Metzger, Philip Comfort, and others, have concluded that what is going on here is that actually the the words Sarah herself is actually uh, in what's known as a dative of circumstance. So in other words, it's showing you the circumstantial aspect of what Abraham had to overcome, namely Sarah's barrenness. Now the reason why I disagree with the NASB, because as you notice, the word barren is not in there. However, stera is in the Greek text. So therefore, um, the NASB here, and, and, and I would say this, probably the majority of your Greek translate, or your uh, English translations, will render it something like this. But what am I to do? Because <laughs> I've got MacArthur, Peter O'Brien, William Hendrickson. We've got Lane from Word Biblical. You have uh, pretty much every respectable scholar on the book of Hebrews saying, no, 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 no. A closer study of this passage actually yields the interpretation that it is not Sarah who received the ability to conceive, but it was Abraham who gave, who was given the ability to procreate. Remember, uh, Abraham was never barren or sterile. He was never sterile, but we know that according to Genesis 11, Sarah was sterile her whole life. And so the word, st- or, or, or she was barren her whole life. So stera here refers to Sarah, and so does the word, or the phrase, even beyond the proper time of life. So what's being said is, by faith Abraham received the ability, literally to set down seed, literally to, to impregnate his wife, even though Sarah was barren and beyond the proper time of life. And then, 
another translation issue. Verse 11. See, I have a choice as a pastor either to keep this all from you or deal with it. Right? And so I'm dealing with it with you openly and honestly instead of glossing over this difficulty and then you go, you go and study it yourself and you find the difficulty and say, wait a minute, Pastor Mueller didn't say anything about this. Well, I can't do that, so I gotta deal with it. But then it says here, she considered him faithful who had promised. Again, that is an interpretation, not a translation. The Greek verb there, to consider, does not refer to Sarah, but to Abraham. He considered him faithful who had promised. And then verse 12 sort of fleshes out this interpretation. Therefore, there was born even to one man. You see that? That is a literal interpretation of the text. And him as good as dead. So, that's the hard reality of the text. And I think that... That is probably the right interpretation. If you want to talk more in depth about that, uh, I would love to talk to you about that. But the issue here is very simple, actually. What this text is saying is that both Abraham and Sarah had no earthly business having kids. <laughs> That's what it's saying. That Sarah, she was barren. Abraham, as good as dead, had no earthly business having a child. And therefore, God because of his sovereign faithfulness, is to be credited for what happened there. But God used the faith of these people. He infused them with the grace of faith. Right? Faith is a gift. Faith is not something inherently uh, within man. It has to be given to you to believe. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 says that very thing. It has been granted to you to believe. And then throughout the book of Acts, again and again, faith is cast in categories as being a gift. Also Ephesians chapter 2, at the same thing, the same thing is being said there that faith is a gift of God if you take it in that way, which I think that's right. But it was ultimately the faithfulness of God. Abraham, I would say Sarah as well. They considered that God was faithful to overcome their weaknesses in order to fulfill His promise. Oh, I tell you what, the credibility of a faithful God. What we sang, we have proved Him over and over. And some of you are still scratching your head wondering, what is or and or? <laughs> And that's what the hymn is trying to say, is that over and over, wave upon wave, season after season, year after year, episode after episode in your life, wouldn't you say, Christian, God has been faithful to you? In every way, in every season, to the very end, He will. He will be faithful to you. God is faithful. Every temptation, He will provide an escape. God is faithful. If He calls you, He will bring it to pass. It's talking about salvation. God is faithful, according to the Apostle Paul, that His safety, His well-being, His ministry, having been committed to Him, He's able to guard it for the day of Christ Jesus. And finally, Brothers and sisters, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, 
Those who suffer according to God's will should entrust their souls to who? A faithful creator in doing what is right. Oh, the credibility of a faithful God. That's what we're looking at. Trusting God, however, is something, again, that we either increase in or decrease in. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would. I invite you to turn to Romans 4. Romans chapter 4, only because there we have a parallel passage. Actually, uh, just not to bring up the textual question again, but it seems like Romans chapter 4 actually supports the textual translation that I just gave you, or interpretation of the text that I just gave you. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, because ultimately what Paul is doing there in Romans 4 is he's arguing, right, for the nature of saving faith and how it worked and when it worked. But he's doing that in the life of Abraham, and so he comes upon the historical narrative of his life and what happened, and so we have here a close parallel to Hebrews 11. Look at verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed. Notice the nature of of that faith. Hoping against hope. Meaning where there just seemed to be no hope. There seems to be no way. And yet they believed. That he might become the father of many nations. According to which it had been spoken, uh, according to, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Same thing as Hebrews. Without becoming weak in faith. Notice that. Without becoming weak in faith. He contemplated his own body. Wow. See, he was a realist. <laughs> yes, he believed. Yes, he had faith. But that doesn't mean he didn't contemplate his own decrepit body at this point. Now, listen to this. Now as good as dead. Doesn't that remind you of something? Hebrews. Since he was about a hundred years old. Watch this. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet... With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. I came here today with the express goal of making you, or at least admonishing you, because I cannot make you as much as I, I wish as, I wish I could, as much as I want to, I cannot actually physically totally make you strong in faith, and you can't make me strong in faith, or else I would subject to myself to you in any way that I'd have to, to make, become strong in faith. But I came here today with the express goal to attempt to strengthen our faith. Because those who have strong faith will perform great exploits in God's name without wavering. He was fully convinced, fully assured that what God had promised He is able to perform. Able to perform. See, God is in the business of using weakness, right? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I know you know know what what, what this passage probably says, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, right? The reason I bring you here is not just because it says power is perfected in weakness, but it also goes on to tell us what is the mindset that we ought to adopt if that is true. If it is true that strength, that power, that God's strength, God's power in our life is perfected in the context of weakness, what is the result and perspective or attitude that we ought to adopt? Look at what it says. 
My grace is sufficient for you, for powers perfected in weakness, most gladly. And let me just stop there just for one second. It doesn't make sense, therefore, Paul, even though in the eyes of everyone else around you, it doesn't make sense that God removed the thorn from your flesh, whatever it is, physical weakness, spiritual affliction, divisiveness, uh, an element of divisiveness. There's debates on what that is. I think it is spiritual, or excuse me, physical weakness. I think that's what it is. And to everyone around, we scratch our heads. Why doesn't God heal? Why would God allow Nabil Qureshi, young 30-something-year-old apologist, just beginning his ministry to have stage 4 stomach cancer with two babies and a young wife? That makes absolutely no sense. Doesn't he know that that doesn't, I mean, that just doesn't look good. It doesn't produce happiness. But yet, God, just like with Paul, there's a higher law. There's a higher principle than just that God ordains a life for you where everything goes well all the time. And the principle is that God's power is perfected in weakness. And therefore, Paul says this, Most gladly, therefore, see, this is strong faith. I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. Oh, how much can you jam into that word difficulties? How, how would you fill that word out? Difficulties. Looking at what you're facing right now in your life. Or have faced. Or may face. It is all for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. One other thing. And that is the fact that not only did faith overcome Abraham and Sarah's weakness, but hear me now, it also enabled them to overcome their sense of inadequacy. Do you feel inadequate today for the things that God has called you to? I do, all the time. I have what is known as sermon remorse. There are times where I vow never to preach again. (laughs) There are times where I descend from the pulpit thinking, that's the worst sermon I've ever preached in my life. I'll never preach again. (laughs) Chris, you got it, brother. (laughs) And Chris is like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. Don't put that on me. Where's your strong faith? (laughs) There are many areas in our lives, if we're honest with ourselves, where we feel totally inadequate to do what God is calling us to do. Parents, Right? We look at the standard. We look at another godly family. We look at their children. We look at the the obedience, the reverence. We look at the orderliness and we look at our lives and we think, boy, I have so far to go. I'm totally inadequate. I'm I'm the worst parent in the world. This is the way that the enemy works. I'm the worst husband. I'm the worst wife. I'm always doing this. I'm always doing that. I never do this. I never do that. John Piper warns us of spiritual warfare. He says, be careful about all the alls and all the nevers when you speak. Because God is able. That's the point. And notice how God, 
He accomplished the greatest redemptive promise ever through the inadequacy of these people. Let's look at verse 12 again. Therefore, there was born even of one man unto him, watch this, as good as dead at that. Guess what? The Greek text is a bit more uh, graphic than this. The Greek text is a perfect passive participle, nenekromenus, which literally, literally can be translated being already dead. <laughs> as far as Abraham was concerned, the guy's already dead. And God is promising a promised child through this man whose body is already dead. But as he contemplated his old and decrepit old body, Abraham would have innumerable descendants. The gospel hangs on the promise that was made to Abraham. You know that. And so what's the hope? The hope is this. The hope is that the same principle that is was operative in the life of Abraham to fulfill the greatest redemptive promise of all in the Abrahamic covenant, that same principle, brothers and sisters, is now operative in our own lives as we bank on the promises of God in the new covenant. I'll take this a step further because I've been talking a lot about about um, uh, needs that relate, let's say, to areas of our domestic life, our marriage, our, ha- our home, our family, our finances, and those things. But let me bring it back home to the context of Hebrews. Why does chapter 11 exist in the book of Hebrews in the first place? Go back to chapter 10 of Hebrews just for context. Right? Why does the author launch into a digression of what is known as the hall of faith? Because of verse 19, uh, 39 of chapter 10. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. Destruction is at the back of all of this. But we are those who's, who have faith to the preserving of the soul. What's the mountain that we're climbing? The mountain is persevere in a, a life of endurance. As John Calvin would say, the Christian life is a lifelong, agonizing process. And right now we are looking uphill and we are wondering how are we going to ascend the ridges of our sanctification. And Hebrews is saying, faith, believe. Remember the old wilderness generation? It was because they did not mingle the Word of God with faith that it was not effective for them. What is that saying? Because Hebrews goes on to say they had good news preached to them. What they're saying is this. You can sit in the church week after week, year after year, and and listen to sermon after sermon after sermon, but if you don't mingle it with faith, it can actually be the instrument of your demise. Oh, how terrifying is that? That's why Paul, he said, often I came with, I came to you in fear and in trembling. Pastor Chris and I were attempting to counsel a woman once 
And I think we both were taken back when she says, I feel like I have to kind of fear around here sometimes that I'm going to do something that is going to, people are going to attack me for it. My response to her, I don't know if Chris remembers this, but I said, what's wrong with fear? The apostle says he walked in fear. He ministered in fear. He preached in fear. Fear and trembling. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But everything in our contemporary evangelical culture is telling us not fear and trembling, but Disneyland, Christianity. That's what we're after. Not fear and trembling, but Christian concerts and rock climbing walls and full-scale arcades in the youth group. Where's the fear? Where's the the trembling? Ravenhill said, Tell your kids... They sit at the end of the table. They don't want to go to church. Of course they don't. Of course they don't want to go to church. They're going to hell. Why would they want to go to church? Fear. Trembling. Isn't it ironic that in the Christian walk, the way up is often down. The way to progress is through humility. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and what? He will exalt you. Let's pray together. Father, I can, I can preach everything that I can muster to try to induce fear and trembling and faith in your people. But Lord, let it be just like Abraham and Sarah, as they caught a glimpse of the faithfulness of God, that it be the faithfulness of God that produces that in us. We don't have to do it of ourselves. You will do it for us as we reflect on Your faithfulness. You will put our eyes on things unseen. We put our faith in You. It is Your faithfulness that will carry us. Because we are weak. Because we are inadequate. But because Your grace and Your faith is enough to strengthen us so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, when we are weak, then we are strong. That is a mystery. And we long to learn more of the mystery of faith. All for Your glory. All for Your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.